You're listening to The Children's Hour on Open Lines Radio. Follow Hannah on Instagram at Roadside Shaman. Follow Open Lines Radio on Instagram at Open Lines Radio. And be sure to check out Open Lines Radio online at www.openlinesradio.com. Now gather around the kids. It's time for The Children's Hour. Enjoy! like beings into this space it's Friday we're having a story hour I've gathered some books including Tasha Tudor's bedtime book which was one of the first books I can never remember reading I remember sitting on the couch in the living room of my parents house and reading to my parents from this book when I was probably about three maybe four years old, quite young. I, I was an early reader. I was atypical from the get-go. Um, so I'm going to be reading Tasha Tudor's Bedtime Book by Platt and Monk, it says on the front. That must be the publisher. Tasha Tudor is the author and I think also the illustrator. It's beautiful, soft sort of watercolor um sketches very um detailed and um organic looking they're just they they have a natural flow to them these illustrations they're gentle they're beautiful i haven't looked at them in a very long time this is kind of weird this is kind of weird to look at them this this way I forgot how much story there is in this book. This might be a whole hour just to read this whole book. We might have to do this in two parts. Kids, little ones, brilliant ones. And I think what I'll do is I'm going to begin at the beginning. And depending on how many of Tasha Tudor's bedtime book stories we get through, in say one hour because I think I do like the idea of keeping this to around an hour um, depending on how much of that I get done with I may or may not go on to the other stories the other stories may keep for next Friday um, let's see let's see how we how we go how we do the dedication a couple pages in reads for Murray Ryan with respectful admiration Tasha Tudor's Bedtime Book, edited by Kate Climo. Um, I have Goldilocks and the Three Bears is the first story. And across the top of the pages is one, two, three, four, five, six panels telling the story in simple images. There's Goldilocks running through a field chasing a butterfly, indicating how she sort of wandered upon this area, peeking in through the window into the empty house, seeing the empty bowls on the table, I mean seeing the bowls of porridge on the table, 
going into the house she's on a chair she's dropped a bowl um, then the third frame is mother father and baby bear all kind of gathered around the chair trying to figure out what happened and then the the fifth frame is Goldilocks asleep in one of the bears and all three bears coming upon her and startling her and then the final frame is her running out of the house uh, with the bears peeking through the window so spoiler alert aka I'm giving you guys a heads up of where this story is going just uh, for comfort I don't know about you but I like having a heads up Goldilocks and the three bears reads as follows as follows once upon a time three bears lived together in a house in the woods one was a great big bear one was a middle-sized bear and one was a wee small bear one morning they sat down to a breakfast of porridge there was a big bowl for the great big bear, a middle-sized bowl for the middle-sized bear, and a wee bowl for the wee small bear. But the porridge was too hot to eat, so they went for a walk in the woods while it cooled. While they were gone, a little girl named Goldilocks came by on her way through the woods. She looked in the window and saw that no one was home. Then she opened the door and walked right in. When Goldilocks saw the porridge on the table, she helped herself. The porridge in the big bowl was too hot. The porridge in the middle-sized bowl was too cold. But the porridge in the wee bowl was just right, and she ate up every last bite of it. Bit of it. Then Goldilocks sat down in a chair. The chair belonging to the great big bear was too hard. The chair belonging to the middle-sized bear was too soft. The chair belonging to the wee small bear felt just right. But as soon as Goldilocks had settled down and made herself comfortable, the bottom split and she fell to the floor. Having broken the chair, Goldilocks went in search of a comfortable bed. The great big bed of the great big bear was too hard. The middle-sized bed of the middle-sized bear was too soft. The wee bed of the wee small bear was just right, so she climbed under the covers and fell asleep. The bears soon returned from their walk. They knew right away that something was wrong. Somebody has been eating my porridge, said the great big bear in a great booming voice. Somebody has been eating my porridge, said the middle-sized bear in a middle-sized voice. Somebody has been eating my porridge and it's all eaten up, cried wee small bear in a wee squeaky voice. So the bears set out to conduct a thorough search of the house. First they came upon the chairs. Somebody has been sitting in my chair, said great big bear in a great booming voice. Somebody has been sitting in my chair, said middle-sized bear in a middle-sized voice. Somebody has been sitting in my chair and it's broken, cried wee small bear in a wee squeaky voice. Then the bears went into the bedroom. Somebody's been lying in my bed, said great big bear in a great booming voice. Somebody has been lying in my bed, said middle-sized bear in a middle-sized voice. Somebody has been lying in my bed, cried wee small bear in a wee squeaky voice, and she is still here. At the sound of wee small bear's wee squeaky voice, 
Goldilocks awoke to the sight of the three bears. So startled was she that she jumped from the bed and out the nearest window. She was never again seen by the three bears, who certainly did not miss her. All right. The Frog Prince is the next story. And this story has one large panel, full page on the right, a gentle watercolor of a sort of a willow tree and some iris blooming and some ferns growing. And there's a, a low um, curved wall indicating the shape of a well. Um, and there's a frog holding a glowing orb. It looks almost like if a soap bubble could be lit up like a light bulb and he's holding it in his hands and he's got a little crown on and the um, the figure standing over this wall is a, um, a girlish or womanly figure with long blonde hair kind of gently waving down her back um, and she's got a little tiara kind of like a diadem resting on her head a little um, simple, narrow-banded coronet. Um, that's the image. Very beautiful, pale, bluish-toned watercolor. So this is the tale of the Frog Prince. Long ago, when wishes really came true, there lived a king and his beautiful daughter. She was so beautiful that the sun gave her a golden ball as a gift. Every day, when the sun was hot and high in the sky, she would sit on the cool stones of the palace well, tossing her golden ball high in the air and catching it. One day, she accidentally tossed her golden ball into the well. She cried and cried. Tell me why you're crying, princess. The princess looked up. Through her tears, she saw that a frog had spoken these words. I'm crying because my golden ball has fallen into the well and I know I shall never get it back. Is that all? said the frog. I'll be glad to fetch it for you, but what will you give me if I do? Oh, dear, sweet, helpful frog, said the princess. Anything in the world you wish for will be yours. All that I wish, said the frog, is that you make me your best friend. Let me sit beside you at table, eat from your plate, and drink from your cup. Let me sleep on your pillow at night, and princess, I will dive into that well and fetch your golden ball. No sooner had the princess promised to grant his wish than the frog dived into the well and returned with her ball. Without so much as a word of thanks, the princess picked up the ball and skipped home to the palace. Wait! Wait for me! croaked the frog. But the princess did not even hear. The next evening, the princess and king were eating dinner when they heard a splashing and a plopping on the front step. The princess ran to the door. There, squatting on the doorstep, was the frog. She slammed the door and ran back to her place at the table. Whatever is the matter, daughter? asked the king. It's nothing, father, but an old green frog. And what does such a creature want with us? asked the king. I promised the frog that if he fetched my ball from the well, I would be his best friend. But, oh, father, I never dreamed he would leave the well. A promise is a promise, said the king. 
sternly. Now go and let in your friend. With great reluctance, the princess opened the door. The frog followed her to her chair. Lift me up beside you, he croaked. She shuddered, but remembered her promise and placed him on the chair beside her. Then he asked to be set on the table where he might reach her plate and cup. And when it was time for bed, he asked to sleep on the pillow by her head. There, to the princess's disgust, he stayed until just before dawn. The next night, the frog came back, sat at the table, ate from the princess's plate, drank from her cup, and slept on the pillow by her head. Ugh, said the princess on the third night. However shall I get a wink of sleep with that horrid beast on my pillow? And she cried herself to sleep. The next morning, the frog slid off her pillow and onto the floor. But as soon as his feet touched the floor, he was no longer a frog. He had become a handsome young prince. You see, he said to the surprised princess, a wicked magician put a spell on me. Only your staying with me three nights in a row could break the spell. Then they really did become best friends. And when they grew up, they married and lived happily together for many years. That's sweet. Okay. This is the story of the three wishes. I see a figure of a naiad. No, what's a tree? Uh, a nymph? A, what's a tree nymph called? I, well, whatever it is. There's a tree, tree with looks like it's a girl growing out of it. And then there's a huntsman looking figure, you know, large of nose and belly, carrying a small hand axe or hatchet. And then uh, the picture on the facing page is a matronly woman with her head covered and an apron covering a well-worn patched skirt, I'm imagining, uh, you know, lower income sort of household workaday folk. Um, and then a person next to them, uh, looks like they're drinking from a, a cup or a bowl. It's a round shaped vessel. There's cups and plates and a bird cage and all kinds of interesting details. Oh, there's even a cat, a cat peeking up over the table, trying to see what's happening. There's a pitcher and a bowl on the table for washing up likely. So this is the story of the three wishes. Once there was a woodcutter who made a good living at his trade. He and his wife had a cozy cottage, warm clothing, and all the food they could eat. Still, they were always wishing for more. One day, when the woodcutter was at work, a wood nymph appeared from within a tree he was just about to cut. She was as wispy and delicate as the tree itself. Please, woodcutter, she implored, spare this tree, for it is my only home, and without it I should die. So startled was the woodcutter that he readily obliged. You shall be rewarded, said the wood nymph. I shall grant you three wishes. One is for you, one is for your wife, and the third is for you both. Tomorrow evening I shall come to you so that you may tell me what your third wish will be. The woodcutter ran home to tell his wife the good news. They joined hands and danced with joy. Imagine having three whole wishes come true. They talked excitedly through dinner. 
and well into the night about all the things that might wish for. Castles with rooms of gold, acres of land, and hundreds of suits of clothes. Finally, unable to settle upon their wishes, they decided to go to bed. Perhaps in the morning they would be able to make up their minds. In the morning, the woodcutter and his wife awoke to discover they were without breakfast. The wife had been so busy considering wishes the night before that she'd completely forgotten to prepare a breakfast pudding. Foolish woman, scolded the woodcutter. With all your talk of castles and gold, you forgot to put up our breakfast. I'm as hungry as a bear. How I wish there were a tasty pudding here right now. No sooner had he said these words than a plum pudding appeared on the table before the couple's startled eyes. Startled eyes. Clumsy fool, cried the wife. See how you stupidly abused your wish? You deserve to have that pudding stuck to your nose. I wish it were. With these words, the pudding flew from the table and stuck fast to the woodcutter's nose. Though she tried with all her might, the foolish wife could not pry the wood pudding loose. Now we shall see... "'Now we shall have to use that third wish to wish it off my nose,' shouted the woodcutter from behind the pudding. But his wife would not agree to use their last wish in that manner. While flies buzzed around the pudding bowl, heated words flew back and forth. By evening, however, when the wood nymph came to grant the couple's last wish, they had agreed to use the wish to unstick the pudding bowl from the woodcutter's nose. And so the final wish was made. The plum pudding and the woodcutter at last were separated. The pudding was eaten with great gusto and proper thanks. From that day forth, the couple appreciated the good things they had had all along, and they never again wished for more. This is the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And this is a really beautiful image that accompanies this story. It's a large, um, looks like an oak tree to me, uh, broad branches, broad leaves, um, spreading out over a, uh, clearing in a wood. There's a little brook running. There's a couple of dwarves guarding the scene at the bottom, and there's a horse and a prince-like figure kneeling and then inside of a clear glass coffin shaped um, uh, box is a dark-haired feminine figure wearing a gown with a crown of what it looks like flowers around her head and then there's um, a rose bush growing at the head of the um, coffin box type thing. And there's a little bird down the bottom corner and squirrels. There's all kinds of wildlife in the, in the scene. So that's the illustration. And this is a story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Once upon a time, a beautiful baby girl was born to a king and queen. She had skin as white as snow, lips as red as blood, and hair as black as ebony. She was called Snow White. As soon as Snow White was born, her mother died. A year later, the king married a second time. His new wife was beautiful, but she was jealous of anyone more beautiful than she. She had a magic mirror of which she daily asked, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of us all? The mirror always answered, 
thou art fairest in the land. The years passed, and with each passing year, Snow White grew more beautiful. Finally, there came a day when the queen was told by the mirror, Queen, thou art fair, tis true, but Snow White is fairer far than you. Upon hearing this, the queen ordered a huntsman to take Snow White into the woods and kill her. The huntsman could not kill Snow White. Instead, he left her in the woods, returned to the queen, claiming to have killed her. The queen was satisfied. Meanwhile, Snow White wandered in the dark wood until she came upon a cottage. No one was inside. But there were seven little chairs around a table set for seven, and seven little beds. Snow White chose the largest bed and went to sleep. In the morning, Snow White awoke to find seven dwarfs crowded round the bed, staring at her in awe, for never before had they seen such beauty. When she told them of her plight, they were only too happy to let her stay with them. Each day, the seven dwarfs marched off to, mountains, to the mountains to mine for gold and gems. Snow White stayed behind and kept house. Back at the castle, the queen was not at all happy. One morning, she went to her mirror to ask who was fairest, and the mirror told her that Snow White, who lived in the woods with seven little men, was fairest in the land. The queen disguised herself as a peddler and went to the cottage of seven dwarfs. Would you care to buy this splendid belt? She asked Snow White. Let me tie it about you. Whereupon she tied the belt so tightly that Snow White fell to the floor in a swoon. The seven dwarves returned from the hills just in time to loosen the belt and save Snow White. But they did not catch the queen who had long since left. When the wicked queen reached home, the mirror reported to her that Snow White was still fairest. More jealous than ever, she made a poisoned apple. The next day, again disguised as a peddler, the queen sold the apple to Snow White. With one bite of the luscious red apple, Snow White fell dead. When the dwarves came home that evening, they tried in vain to bring Snow White back to life. After all their efforts had failed, they built a lovely glass coffin so that all who passed might look upon the beautiful maiden. One day, a prince came riding through the forest and chanced to see the coffin. He fell deeply in love with Snow White and begged the dwarves to let him take the coffin. The dwarves consented, for they could see that the prince's heart would break if they refused his request. As they lifted the coffin, the morsel of poisoned apple fell from Snow White's lips, and to everyone's great joy and surprise, she began to breathe again. That very day, the prince and Snow White were married. They lived in happiness for the rest of their lives. So this is the story of Shingabus. And there are two illustrations. On the left is uh, what looks like a log cabin scene, but the only variance is that instead of a person standing by the cook fire um, frying up some fish, it looks like there's a mallard duck wearing an apron uh, standing there with a little spoon in hand 
cooking. Um, the facing page, there's a winter scene with the, looks like the exterior of that cabin and uh, what looks like an anthropomorphized vision of winter wind. A, a, it looks like kind of like a skeletal, bearded, man-like creature made of snow and ice sort of running across the landscape. Um, Shungabis. On the shores of the great lake, Shungabis, the wild duck, made his home. During the summer, he sought his food in the shallow water along the shore. Dipping his big bill into the soft mud, he scooped up little shellfish and tadpoles and other things a wild duck likes to eat. When the summer had passed, the mud became hard with frost, but Shungabus didn't mind. How fortunate it is that I have a comfortable lodge with a good fire, he said to himself. Fortunate, too, that I have such a strong bill. Shungabus left his lodge and went down to the lake. The water was frozen from shore to shore. He walked along until he saw a bunch of frozen rushes standing up above the ice. Then, with his strong bill, he pulled them up and made a hole in the ice. There were fish swimming under the ice. Soon, Shungabus had a nice long string of them to take home for supper. Far up into the Arctic lived the north wind. He was a quarrelsome creature. He liked to come blowing down over the earth, frightening the animals and birds. I think I'll go down and blow over the great lake, he growled to himself one day. As he blew, the deer and rabbits huddled in their homes. The squirrels rolled themselves up in hollow trees and went to sleep. But Shingabus went about his usual business. He walked down to the hole he had made in the ice the day before. It was frozen over. With his strong bill, Shingabus opened it up again. Then he fished for his supper. Ooh, 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 ooh. Howled the north wind, swirling around the duck, but Shingabus paid him no attention. He had a coat of feathers and down that kept him warm and comfortable. He feared no wind. When he had caught as many fish as he wanted, Shingabus went back to his lodge, singing a song his mother had taught him when he was a tiny duckling. Oh, north wind, why frighten mothers? In nature's family, all our brothers. The north wind heard this and laughed scornfully. <laughs> when I blow, all living creatures must hide. Puff and blow and wheeze and hiss. You can't frighten Shingabis, sang the duck as he cooked his supper. We'll see whether you are as brave as you say, so said the north wind. When he swept away the over the lake and with his cold breath froze the ice thick over the hole where Shingabus fished. Next morning, Shing Shingabus went to fish and found the ice too thick to break. He walked along the shore until he saw a clear place with frozen rushes standing up. With his strong bill, he pulled out the rushes and fished through the hole he had made. When Shingabus was back at the lodge cooking supper, the north wind appeared. Ooh. Ooh. 
shouted. I'll blow your lodge down. But Shingabis had built his lodge so well that it did not bend or sway when the wind blew. Gaily he sang, Bring your frost and ice and snow, I'm still free to come and go. Then the north wind became so angry that he lifted the window flap and whirled into the lodge. I'll blow your fire out, he roared. But as he puffed, the fire only burned brighter and brighter. Whew! exclaimed the north wind, who was not used to staying in a warm room. He felt drops of water running down his face. I'm melting, he cried, and lifting the flap, he rushed from the lodge. Shingabis sang after him. You can never frighten me. One who doesn't fear is free. And the north wind troubled Shingabis no more. That's a happy story. Powerful little fearless duck Shingabis. Then we have the story of the sorcerer's apprentice. The illustration on the facing page has the apprentice leaning over the cauldron and the fire and the hearth. There are a lot of magical and mystical figures in this drawing and illustration. The most important one to me, of course, is the rooster running along the bottom of the page because we are recording this in the midst of Coxcomb Red Moon. So that chicken is important to me right now, if at no other season. The Sorcerer's Apprentice is carrying a bundle of sticks, and this is the story. A man who needed help in his workshop came upon a lad who seemed in need of a job. You look hungry, son. It so happens that I need an apprentice in my workshop. Can you read and write? Yes, sir, indeed I can, said the lad, who had set out to seek his fortune that very morning. Too bad, then, for I require an apprentice who cannot read and write. I beg your pardon, sir, said the lad hastily. I really cannot read and write. I said I could only because I thought it would help me to get the job. Excellent, said the man. You've got the job. Come along to my workshop and I'll set you to work. Now, the lad knew perfectly well how to read and write, and he was suspicious of any man who had no use for such valuable skills. His suspicions deepened when he saw the workshop. It was as dark and musty as a cave. It was a it was as dark and musty as a cave. A giant <coughs> a giant copper cauldron bubbled on the hearth. The walls, dusty and cobwebby, held hundreds of books, great glass beakers, oddly shaped jars, and all sorts of queer scales and measuring devices. Why, this man is a sorcerer said the lad to himself if i keep my eyes open i might learn something useful every day the lad did his chores he stirred the foul smelling brew that simmered in the cauldron he ground up all manner of herbs he fetched wood and kept the fire blazing in the hearth one night when he was sure the sorcerer was asleep the lad crept from his bed and carefully drew down a book from one of the shelves each page was covered with ancient spidery writing, mystic symbols, formulas, spells, and recipes for potions. Unable to put down the book, he read until dawn. Then, his head swimming with incantations, he crept back to bed.
The next night, the lad studied two more books, this time memorizing the formulas. Night after night, he read and studied. The more he learned, the more obvious it became to him that his employer was a wicked sorcerer. Each day, while the sorcerer was out, doing evil, no doubt, the lad practiced casting spells. He turned a cat into a mouse, then back into a cat. He turned a broom into a cello and back again. One day, the sorcerer came in early and caught him practicing. Lying wretch, he cried, so you can read and write. You've stolen my secrets. With that, he moved to toss the lad into the boiling cauldron. The quick-witted apprentice immediately cast a spell and changed the sorcerer into a bird. But as he flew out the door into the forest, the sorcerer uttered a stronger incantation and changed into a larger, faster bird. Wings flapping, the sorcerer flew after his apprentice. Quick as a wink, the lad changed into a fish. Just as quickly, the sorcerer became a bigger fish. Then the boy became a gigantic fish. In order to escape, the sorcerer was forced to cast the most powerful spell at his command, turning himself into a kernel of corn corn he rolled into a tiny crack between two stones out of the lad's reach instantly the apprentice turned himself into a rooster with his sharp beak he dug out the tiny kernel and gobbled it up putting an end to the wicked sorcerer the apprentice then became a full-fledged sorcerer he took over the workshop and from that day on used all his skills to make only good magic. Oh my, what a powerful tale indeed. That's an interesting way to look at the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Much better than the Walt Disney version, I think. Because I think there's great power in trying and in learning something new and in apprenticeship and in, you know, taking over your boss's job. There is a great power in magic in that indeed. Now we come to the tale of the Billy Goat's Gruff. The illustration is across the top of both pages. There's a curved stone bridge. There's a Billy Goat on one side and two other goats on the other side of the bridge. And underneath the bridge is a very, very ugly troll indeed. Oh my. Long tail bearing a club. Here, uh, there once upon a time, there once upon a time lived three Billy Goats they were called the billy goat's gruff the biggest billy goat was the big billy goat gruff the middle-sized billy goat was middle-sized billy goat gruff the littlest billy goat was little billy goat gruff the three billy goats gruff lived in a valley they liked to eat the fresh green grass there they ate the grass all day long they ate and ate until at last they had eaten all the fresh green grass what shall we do? asked little Billy Goat Gruff. There is no more grass for us to eat here. Where can we find more? Big Billy Goat Gruff said, In the morning we will go to the hills on the other side of the stream. There we will find fresh green grass. But remember, to cross the stream we must go over a bridge. Under the bridge lives a big ugly troll who likes to eat Billy Goats and he does not like anyone to go over his bridge. We must be very careful. Early next morning, little Billy Goat Gruff awoke and said, I am hungry. I will go across the bridge to the hills all by myself and eat the grass there. I will cross the bridge very quietly. 
so that the big ugly troll will not hear me. Little Billy Goat Gruff started off, and soon he came to a bridge. Trip, chop, chip, chop, onto the bridge he went. Who is walking over my bridge? asked the big ugly troll. It is I, said Little Billy Goat Gruff. I am going to the hills to eat grass. Oh, no, you are not, shouted the troll. I am coming to eat you. Please, Mr. Troll, don't eat me, said Little Billy Goat Gruff. Wait for middle-sized Billy Goat Gruff. He is bigger than I. Um, so the big ugly troll let the little goat go trip trapping across the bridge. Soon, middle-sized Billy Goat Gruff woke up and ran to the bridge. Trip trap trip trap onto the bridge he went. Who is walking on my bridge? Shouted the troll. I am middle-sized Billy Goat Gruff. I am going to the hills on the other side of the bridge to eat grass. The big ugly troll said, Oh no, you are not going to cross the bridge. I am coming to eat you. Oh, please don't eat me, middle, said middle-sized Billy Goat Gruff. Wait for big goat, Billy Goat Gruff. He is bigger than I am. Very well, said the troll. He let the middle-sized goat across the bridge. Then middle-sized Billy Goat Gruff ran off to the hills and joined little Billy Goat Gruff. We got away from the troll, they said, and big Billy Goat Gruff will get away from him too. Soon, Big Billy Goat Gruff awoke. He did not see the other two Billy Goats Gruff. They have gone to the hills to eat grass, he said. I will go there too. Soon he came to the bridge. Tramp, 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 went Big Billy Goat Gruff on the bridge. The big ugly troll was waiting for Big Billy Goat Gruff. When he heard tramp, tramp on the bridge, he knew it was Big Billy Goat Gruff. Who is walking on my bridge? said the troll. It is I, Big Billy Goat Gruff. I am going across your bridge. I am going to the hills to eat grass. Oh, no, you are not, said the big, ugly troll. I'm coming to eat you. Come on up, said Big Billy Goat Gruff. I am not afraid of you. Up climbed the troll from under the bridge. Big Billy Goat Gruff put his head down and ran at the troll. Boom! Went Big Billy Goat Gruff. Splash! went the troll into the water. Then Big Billy Goat Gruff joined the other two Billy Goats Gruff in the hills. There they ate grass and grew fat and lived happily ever after. That's another good story. All right. Let's see, where were we? Mother Holda, right? The illustration for this, we again have a figure beside a well, engaged with a well. Um, this well uh, is, again, low curved wall, stone wall. There's a what looks to be a rose vine growing up one of the posts, a four-posted little peak-roofed cover. And then there's a hook with a rope hanging down. There's a bucket sitting on the side. There's, again, irises in the background. I wonder if Tasha Tudor really liked irises. There's mountains in the distance. It's a very 
pale, kind of dusty pink watercolor. Mother Holda. Well, that story I'm not too pleased about. I don't like the um, tying together of physical beauty with industriousness and um, the lack thereof with laziness. That is a trope I don't really wish to advance. We might just snip that story out of the storybook. Oh, the Star Dipper. This is the story that I remember best and most from this book. This is the one that I remember so fondly reading to my my dad in particular. He liked when I read this story to him. I really enjoy this story. The illustration fills both pages and then the text is centered in the middle. Um, up in the corner on the left, there's a picture of a little girl kneeling in a darkened wood and there's a tiny little dog it looks kind of like a like a yorkie like a little terrier um and it looks like she's allowing the dog to drink from her cup and then below that is an image of the same little girl walking along the path and the cup that she's holding is shining light beams out from the center of it lighting up the path and then on the right side is the exterior of the house and then the mother and the little girl are standing at the stoop at the doorway looking up at the stars in the sky and um yeah that's a beautiful image very soft dark blue gray coloring to indicate that this is a night scene this is the story of the star dipper now a girl lived with her mother in a cottage at the edge of a wood one summer night the mother did not feel well. I am so thirsty, she said. I wish I had a drink of cold water. The little girl was very kind and thoughtful. I will get you a drink, mother, she said, slipping on her dress and shoes. She took an old tin dipper and ran out to the well in the yard. She pulled up the bucket, but not a drop of water was in it. What shall I do, said the little girl. It is so warm, and mother is so weak and thirsty. I will go to the spring. Surely there will be water in the spring. The spring was way off in the woods, and it was a very dark night. But the little girl tried not to be afraid as she ran down the path to the woods. It was darker still in the woods, and she soon lost the path. Sharp stones cut through her shoes. Big stones tripped her. Oh, where is that spring? cried the little girl. Mother is so very thirsty, and I simply cannot turn back. At last she heard a trickling sound, and she knew she had come to the spring. She knelt down and filled the old tin dipper. Then she started home. Soon she met a little dog. He was panting, and his pink tongue was hanging from his mouth. Poor little dog, you must be thirsty. The brooks are all dry. I will give you a drink of this cold water. I have filled the dipper for my mother, but there's enough for you too. She poured some water into her cupped hand and the dog lapped it up eagerly. The little girl continued on her way. Soon she noticed that it had grown lighter. The light seemed to come from her hand. She looked down and saw that the old tin dipper had turned to silver. It was bright and shone like the moon. 
She could walk much faster with the help of the light from the dipper. After a while, the little girl met an old man. Little girl, he asked, can you tell me where I can get a drink of cold water? The brooks are all dry. I will give you a drink, said the little girl, and she gave him some water. The old man thanked her and went on his way. But as soon as he was gone, she noticed that it had grown even lighter than before. She looked down and saw that the silver dipper had turned to gold. It shone like the sun. And since she could see even better than before, it was not long before she reached home. I have brought you a drink of cold spring water, said the little girl. Thank you, my good little girl, said the mother. Ah, oh, how much better I feel. Then the little girl and her mother noticed bright lights flashing on the walls of the house. They looked down and saw that the dipper had changed to sparkling diamonds. Out of the window went the diamonds, high up into the sky. The little girl and her mother stood in the doorway, watching as they turned to seven bright twinkling stars, a dipper in the sky. It was many, many years ago that the kind little girl and her mother lived. But if you look into the sky some bright starry night, you will see the dipper. Here's the story of the babes in the wood. The page um, fills the, the page, um, the illustration fills the page. There's a circle around it of woodland creatures um, in the illustration. And then you see two small children nestled together, sleeping uh, in like a pile of leaves. And then there are a lot of different woodland creatures gathered around squirrel, rabbit, um, chipmunk, different birds, all kinds of little happy creatures are gazing down on these sleeping children. There's even a little tiny owl up in the corner. How cute. Um, oh, and look, a mouse. All right. Oh, two mice. Okay, stop looking at the picture. There's lots of pictures. There's lots of little critters in this picture. Very cute. The real princess. This illustration is interesting. On the left, there's um, royal figures standing at an entrance with a torch in a stormy scene. And then there's a rather soggy looking individual standing, pleading entrance, it looks like. Across the top of both pages, kind of in miniature, is a sort of parade of various different people carrying bundles of fabric that look like pads, quilts, various mattresses, smushies for to go into the bedroom, it looks like. Okay, so... The real princess, oh, and I forgot, and on the right side of the page is a picture with, like, a bunch of different textures of, or colors and patterns of fabric, M mattresses piled one on top of another. Let's see how many I can see in the illustration. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, two, there's twelve that I can see in the picture, there's probably more in the story. Okay. And she's got long blonde hair, obviously, because that's what princesses have in European stories, I guess. Okay. The real princess. 
Once a prince lived in a castle with his aging parents, the king and queen. No sooner had the prince come of age than the king and queen urged him to go out and find himself a young lady to marry. You see, they were eager to have royal grandsons and granddaughters. Not just any young lady would do, however. Only a real princess could become the prince's wife. The prince traveled throughout the world in search of a real princess. But times were hard. While once there had been thousands of princesses, now there was a shortage in the land. And with the few princesses remaining, the prince always found something the matter. One night, a terrible storm blew up. It thundered. It lightened. It rained in frightful quantities. In the midst of this storm, there came a knocking at the castle door. The old king went to see who could be out on such a night. At the door, dripping wet, stood a princess. Water streamed from her straggly hair down her dress and into her shoes. She was a sight, but she claimed nevertheless to be a real princess, and she wished to be granted shelter for the night. A real princess, eh? said the queen, casting a doubtful eye on the visitor. We'll see about that. And without another word, she hurried off to the spare bedroom. Removing all the bedding, she carefully placed a single tiny dried pea in the center of the mattress. Over the pea, she placed 20 more mattresses. And over the mattresses, she placed 20 feather quilts. Then she led the princess, who by now had received a warm bath and dry bedclothes, to the spare bedroom. In the morning, the princess came down to join the royal family at breakfast. Did you sleep well, my dear? They all asked. Sleep, she groaned. I hardly slept a wink the whole night. Indeed, there were great dark circles beneath her eyes. As a matter of fact, the princess continued, I have never spent a more dreadful night. There was some sort of a lump in my bed. It was so hard that I am black and blue all over. Everyone was enormously pleased, except for the princess, of course. For who but a real princess could have felt a tiny pea through twenty mattresses and twenty feather quilts? Only a real princess could have such delicate feelings. And so it came to pass that the royal family's dearest wish was fulfilled at last. The prince and the real princess, who was now delighted since the prince was so handsome, were married with great pomp and splendor. As for the pea that had brought the prince and princess together, it was set on a velvet cushion and carefully placed in a special glass case, kept in a room at the top of the castle. If you knew just where to look, you could probably find it there today. Probably at the Vatican. Okay, Hansel and Gretel. All right, this witch looks pretty rough. I mean, scary looking lady. She would have to have a house made out of candy to get me to come close to her. And then the two kids look like typical storybook kids, toeheads, blonde, cute, short, etc. There are vultures featured 
in this illustration. A large kind of aggressive and scraggly looking striped cat and two vultures. Oh, four vultures, my. One perched over the doorway, one just taking flight off of a branch and two very small flying overhead in the distance. Talk about death signaling. Okay, Hansel and Gretel. On the outskirts of a vast forest, there lived a brother and sister named Hansel and Gretel. Their father was a poor woodcutter and the family was often hungry. Their stepmother grew tired of this hard life. And one night she told the woodcutter, four mouths are too many to feed. Tomorrow we must take the children deep into the forest and leave them. No, wife, the woodcutter said. If we were all to starve, I could not do that. Well, if you cannot, I will, said the stepmother. Hansel heard his mother's wicked plan as he lay in bed. When the old people were asleep, he got up, slipped on his coat, opened the back door, and stole out. The moon shone brightly, and the white pebbles in front of the house glittered like silver. Hansel filled his pocket with many stones. Then he went back to bed. At daybreak, the woman came to wake the children. Get up. We are going to the forest to gather wood. After packing some bread for lunch, they set out together into the forest. Hansel brought up the rear and every few paces dropped a pebble. When they reached the middle of the forest, the stepmother said, now children, go and find some kindling wood. Hansel and Gretel collected wood until tired from their efforts, they fell asleep. When they awoke, it was pitch dark and they were all alone. Gretel began to cry. Don't cry, said Hansel. The moon will soon come up. When the moon had risen, he took his sister by the hand. Together they followed the pebbles, which led them back to their father's house by daybreak. Their father was overjoyed to see them, but their stepmother was not. Lazy things, she snapped. Where's my kindling wood? And she led them right back into the woods and left them there. This time, Hansel had left behind a trail of breadcrumbs instead of pebbles. But the birds had eaten every crumb. Now the children were truly lost. They wandered the woods until they came to a lovely cottage made of bread. The window panes were made of thin sugar. The roof was made of cake. Hansel and Gretel began to nibble at the house, for they were very hungry. A shrill voice called from inside, Nibble, nibble, little mouse, who's nibbling at my house? Then an old woman leaning on a stick peeped out the door. Come inside, she said, and share my supper instead. The children gladly joined her, for they did not know that she was really a witch who captured children, fattened them up, and ate them. As soon as the children were inside, an old woman locked Hansel in a cage. Each day for a week, the witch tested Hansel's plumpness by feeling one of his fingers. Each day, Hansel fooled her. Instead of a finger, he held out a small chicken bone for her to feel. Soon, the witch grew tired. Since Hansel wasn't getting any plumper, she would have to eat both children. The witch opened the oven door and said to Gretel, See if it is hot enough for bread, dear. Gretel pretended not to understand. Show me how to tell, said Gretel. The witch opened the door still wider, and Gretel pushed her inside and slammed the door shut. The witch burned to a cinder. Then Gretel unlocked Hansel's cage and the children ran off. Looking for a path home, the children met their father who had been searching for them for days. 
While they were gone, their stepmother had mysteriously died, he told them. Thus, all their troubles were ended, and they would live happily ever afterward. Now we have the country mouse and city mouse. This is um, four illustrations at the top of the page. In the first panel, there's two um, little rodent-like creatures, one with a long tail, one with no tail visible, eating um, a snack together at a mushroom that looks like a table. And then in the second panel is a bunch of little mice hopping around on food in a kitchen, and then in the other illustration there's a cat chase being chased into a hole by a mouse there's some jam spilled over there's a picture illustration of a mouse trap and like a long-tailed mouse stopping the short-tailed mouse from going in there and then the last illustration shows the short-tailed mouse with a bundle on a stick heading out and the long-tailed mouse staying behind in the in the doorway in the opening so this is the story of the country mouse and the city mouse. A city mouse paid his country cousin a visit. When the country mouse had finished giving his cousin a tour of the fields and the big red barn, they sat down to a dinner of barley and grain. The country mouse ate heartily, but the city mouse only nibbled. Don't you like barley and grain? asked the country mouse. Not very much, dear cousin, answered the city mouse. I don't want to seem impolite, but I wish you could taste the fine things I eat every day. You must come to the city and visit. So the country mouse went to the city to visit. You must be hungry after your trip from the country, said the city mouse. We will go to the pantry and have a taste of real food. The city mouse led the way through a hole in the kitchen into the kitchen pantry. The country mouse had never seen so many jars and bags and boxes. Oh, what luck, cried the city mouse. The bread box is open. They crept inside and the country mouse saw something big and round and brown. This, said the proud city mouse, is chocolate cake. Taste it and see how you like it. The country mouse nibbled at the cake. How sweet it was. How lucky you are, dear cousin, the country mouse was saying, when the door opened and a big rosy-cheeked woman walked into the pantry. Run for the hole, whispered the city mouse, and the two mice scampered back into the hole. When they were safe inside, the city mouse said, don't look so frightened, cousin. That was only the cook. She may not like us, but she cannot catch us. We will go back as soon as she's gone. After a while, the city mouse looked out and saw that the coast was clear. Back to the pantry went the two mice. This time, the city mouse showed his cousin a box. There is something good inside, he said, and they began to gnaw a hole in one corner. Then the country mouse tasted something even more delicious than chocolate cake. The city mouse told him that the box was filled with raisins. Suddenly, the mice heard a scratching at the door. Run for cover, whispered the city mouse. When they were safely back in the hole, the city mouse said, Don't tremble so, dear cousin. That was only the cat. She will soon go away. The country mouse could not stop trembling. I would rather not go back to the pantry, he said. All right, said the city mouse. The nicest thing for mice is in the cellar. They scampered down the stairs to the cellar cupboard. The country mouse thought it was the most wonderful place he had ever seen. On the floor were barrels of apples. From the ceiling hung strings of sausages. The two mice ran about, nibbling here and nibbling there. The country mouse saw something of a deep yellow color. It smelled very good. He took a nibble. It had a most delicious taste. 
That is cheese, his city cousin said. There is nothing better. The country mouse saw another piece of cheese. It was fastened to a queer little square stand. He was just about to take a big bite when the city mouse called out, Stop! Don't eat that! It's in a trap! What's a trap? asked the country mouse. Something hard, said the city mouse, that comes down on your neck. With it, you could never eat again. Oh, said the country mouse, trembling. I think I must be going home right away. You have been kind to give me all these things to eat, but I would rather eat my barley and grain in safety. So the country mouse went home to the country. He ate barley and grain in peace and comfort for the rest of his days. Okay. Now we have the Traveling Musicians of Bremen. And this is another full page illustration. We've got some views of different animals going down a hillside on a path and a trail. Um, again, another well, another rooster, a rooster riding on a horse or a burrow, Bro breaking into an inn, people running out of the inn, a lot of just chaotic scenes. Oh, there's a picture of a donkey kicking a man in the behind. There's a picture of a man, of a dog biting a man on the ankle. This is just quite a scene we have going. And there's a tiny little crescent moon up above that, above that um, mountain. And we are in the waning crescent moon right now. Interesting. The Traveling Musicians of Bremen is recited like this. An old donkey, upon realizing that his master was planning to sell him for his hide, ran away on the road to Bremen. He had made up his mind to become a street musician. Soon he came upon an old hunting hound lying exhausted in the gutter. What ails you, old boy? he asked the dog. Oh, moaned the dog. My master beats me when I fail to catch rabbits. Every day he beats me harder, and every day the rabbits run faster. Soon I'll be put to death, I'm sure. Why not come with me, said the donkey. I'm off to Bremen to become a street musician. The dog agreed to this, and together they set off. Soon they met up with a dejected old cat. What seems to be the problem, Gray Whiskers? asked the donkey. I'm too old to catch mice, and my mistress plans to drown me, said the cat. Then come with us to Bremen. You would make an excellent singer. The cat joined the donkey and the dog, and the three continued on their way. Shortly, they came upon a rooster crowing with all his might. Whatever's the matter, Chanticleer? asked the donkey. Why are you crowing so? My master plans to eat me in a stew, for I promised him good weather, and it rained. Nonsense, said the donkey. Come along with us. You've a splendid voice which would give tone to our band. The rooster agreed, and they proceeded on their way. By evening they had reached a great forest. The rooster flew into a tree to look about and spied a light. Upon reaching the house from which the light came, the donkey looked in the window. He saw a well-laden table with several thieves seated around it. If only they could get at that food. The musicians worked out a plan. The donkey stood with his forelegs on the windowsill. 
The dog climbed on the donkey's back. The cat climbed on the top of the dog's head. And the rooster perched on the head of the cat. Then they began to make music. The donkey brayed, the dog barked, the cat yowled, the rooster crowed, and all four crashed through the window. The thieves, thinking they were being attacked by a demon, ran from the house. Whereupon the four musicians sat down and ate their fill. Then each went to sleep in a place of his choice. Meanwhile, the thieves decided they should not have been so easily frightened. One of them went back to investigate. The thief entered the dark house. Mistaking the cat's glowing eyes for coals, he tried to strike a match from them. The cat sprang at his face, spitting and scratching. The startled thief ran out the door and tripped over the dog, who bit him in the leg. As he ran across the yard, the donkey gave him a sound kick, while the rooster on the roof crowed, Terrified, the thief returned to his comrades. There's a witch in there, he said, who scratched me with a knife, and a black monster in the yard who hit me with a club, and upon the roof sits a judge who cried, Bring the rogue here! With this, the thieves fled, never to return. That perfectly suited the four musicians who lived happily in the house the rest of their lives. That's a fun story. <clears throat> so this story is called The Shoemaker and the Elves. There are four pictures, two on either page. Um, on the left page, there's a picture of the shoemaker working with his pieces of leather and patterns scattered about him on the floor. He's bent over a stool, basically. And there's a cat peering up at him, watching him work. In the second scene, he's standing up and looking at the piles of clothing and the shoes and things. Um, there's completed shoes on the bench and the scraps are on the floor and the cat is looking up at him. And then um, the third picture, the third picture is of the shoemaker and his wife both working on the bench, um, sewing tiny pairs of pants and making a little teeny tiny pair of shoes and the cat is again watching. And then in the last frame, there is a couple of elves dancing on a tabletop around a flame, around a candle. And the cat and the shoemaker and his wife are peeking from behind a curtain watching them from the corner. So those are the four illustrations. And this is how the shoemaker and the elves is recited. That's the last of the leather, said the good shoemaker to his wife. And that's the last pair of shoes I can cut. I'll sew them in the morning. That night, they went to bed worried. They had little to live on. Business had not been good, and with no more leather and no money to buy any, it could only get worse. The next morning, the good shoemaker was amazed to find on his workbench, not the leather pieces, but a pair of shoes, finished and sewn with fine, neat stitches. This must be magic, he declared to his wife. It would take me a week to make such shoes. That day, a lady came into the store and paid him handsomely for the shoes. The shoemaker was now able to buy enough leather for two new pairs. In the evening, he cut two pairs of shoes and laid the pieces on the bench before going to bed. When he came downstairs in the morning, he found two pairs of finished shoes, as finely and neatly stitched as the first pair. That day, customers bought the shoes. 
With the money he got for them, the shoemaker was able to buy leather for four more pairs. In the evening, he cut out the pieces and laid them on the bench. In the morning, four more pairs of finished shoes lay in their place. And so it went. Each night, he left out a number of pairs of shoes ready to be stitched, and every morning he found them finished and ready to be sold. One day, the shoemaker's wife said, Let us stay up tonight and see who it is who helps us. Better not, said the shoemaker, for this is magic, and it's best not to be curious about matters of magic. But if we see these magicians, we might find some way to repay them, said the good wife. The shoemaker agreed, and that night, instead of going to bed, they lit a candle and peeped out from between the folds of the curtains. After the clock had struck midnight, two little naked men came through the window. Without a word, they hopped onto the bench and set to work stitching the leather pieces. How the tiny fingers flew! Before long, all the leather had been made into shoes. Then the two little men joined hands and pranced and skipped about. As the clock struck two, they skipped out the window. Poor little men, said the shoemaker's wife when she was sure they had gone. They looked so bare and cold. I think I will make them each a little suit. What a fine idea, said the shoemaker, and I will make them each shoes. And instead of setting out work for them tonight, we shall set out our presents, said the wife. The next day, the good wife sewed two little coats of fine green cloth and two little waistcoats of yellow, two little pairs of trousers of blue, and two little caps of red. The shoemaker made two tiny pairs of shoes of soft red leather. After supper, they laid out the tiny outfits and two tiny servings of supper. Then they went to bed. As the clock struck twelve, the two little men pranced through the window and skipped over to the bench. When they saw the two little suits of clothes, they chuckled with delight and put them on immediately. When they sat down and ate, then they sat down and ate. When they had finished, they went prancing and skipping out the window. The shoemaker and his wife never saw the elves again, but the elves must have left them luck, for the good couple never again wanted for anything. That's a lovely one. Oh my, this is the sugar plum tree. I love this story. The illustration is beautiful and it's kind of like a poem. It's a poem by Eugene Field. There is a tree that looks like it's growing candy and it's falling from the branches in a rain um, of like lollipops and candy canes and little wrapped sweets. At the top of the sugar plum tree branch, there is a rainbow striped cat with kind of like sparky antenna whiskers going up out of its back and face and it's got that like classic arched curve of a cat when it's you know agitated its tail is quite fluffed and its spine looks like the hairs are standing up underneath it are two children a young boy and a young girl blonde of course again there seems to be a theme here um, and then a little corgi. When I was saying that other dog before, I said it was like a terrier. I don't think it's a Yorkie. I think it's a corgi. It reminds me of the dogs that the Queen of England has as a, as a rule. Okay, so the sugar plum tree is recited thusly. Oh, and I just noticed in the background of the illustration, there's a rainbow. So it's a double rainbow. There's the rainbow striped cat, and then there's the rainbow in the background. How lovely. Okay, the sugar plum tree 
is recited thusly. Have you ever heard of the sugar plum tree? Tis a marvel of great renown. It blooms on the shore of the lollipop sea in the garden of Shut-Eye Town. The fruit that it bears is so wondrously sweet. And those who have tasted say that the good little children have only to eat of that fruit to be happy next day. When you've got to the tree, you would have a hard time to capture the fruit which I sing. The tree is so tall that no person could climb to the boughs where the sugar plums swing. But up in that tree sits a chocolate cat and a gingerbread dog prowls below. And this is the way you contrive to get at those sugar plums tempting you so. You say but a word to that gingerbread dog and he barks with such terrible zest that the chocolate cat is at once all agog as her swelling proportions attest. And the chocolate cat goes cavorting around from this leafy limb unto that and the sugar plums tumble of course to the ground. Hurrah for that chocolate cat. There are marshmallows, gumdrops, and peppermint canes with stripings of scarlet and gold, and you carry away of the treasure that reigns as much as your apron can hold. So come, little child, cuddle closer to me in your dainty white nightcap and gown, and I'll rock you away to that sugar plum tree in the garden of Shut-Eye Town. I like that one. Oh, and then this one's a classic. I really remember this one from my childhood. I remember my parents reading me this one a lot. I think they really liked it. That's one thing you know about, um, you can tell about your parents. They, they read you the ones they like. They read the ones you like, yeah. They read you the stories that you like, but they also read you the stories that they like. So this is the owl and the pussycat. There are two illustrations on either page, at the top of the page. There is um, a boat on water, a moon um, touching the horizon line, and stars scattered in the sky, a few palm trees in the distance, fish under the water. And in this simple boat, there's a cat leaning on the rudder and an owl strumming a guitar. In the other image, it's a shore view of that same moon on the water. They're on land now, the owl and the pussycat, dancing under the palm tree. And there's a little crab watching over them and a few um, clamshells or oyster shells. So those are the illustrations. And um, this is the recitation of the owl and the pussycat. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money, wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar, Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are, what a beautiful pussy you are. Pussy said to the owl, you elegant fowl, how charmingly sweet you sing. Oh, let us be married. Too long we have tarried, but what shall we do for a ring? 
They sailed away for a year and a day to a land where the bong tree grows. And there in a wood, a piggywig stood with a ring at the end of his nose, his nose, his nose, with a ring at the end of his nose. Dear pig, are you willing to sell for one shilling your ring? Said the piggy, I will. So they took it away and were married next day by the turkey who lives on the hill. They dined on mince and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon. And hand in hand on the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon, the moon, the moon. They danced by the light of the moon. That's by Edward Lear. And then um, it looks like the final story in Tasha Tudor's bedtime book is entitled Escape at Bedtime. It's written by Robert Louis Stevenson, and the illustration is lovely. It's a wall, a high brick wall covered by, um, it looks like star jasmine perhaps, and then some other floral greenery, uh, nondescript, maybe some... Uh, are those gladiolas? Well, either way, maybe hyacinth, I'm not sure. The point is, it's a beautiful um, high-walled garden. A young child, likely a boy, is kneeling by, um, uh, there's a pump handle for water. There's a barrel underneath it. There's a watering can and bucket beside. So it's clearly um, another water and sky image. The moon isn't visible in this illustration, just millions and millions and millions of beautiful stars. The lights from the parlor, again, this is entitled Escape at Bedtime. The lights from the parlor and kitchen shone out through the blinds and the windows and bars and high overhead and moving about. There were thousands of millions of stars. There ne'er was such thousands of leaves on a tree, nor of people in church or the park, as the crowds of the stars that looked down upon me and that glittered and winked in the dark, the dog and the plow and the hunter and all, and the star of the sailor and Mars. These shone in the sky and the pail by the wall would be half full of water and stars. They saw me at last and they chased me with cries and they soon had me packed into bed, but the glory kept shining and bright in my eyes and the stars going round in my head. Well, that sounds like an adventure for Dark of the Moon. In the waning moon and in the time when the moon is new we don't really see much moon at night. It's usually rising so late in the evening or, or even into the wee hours of the morning that we don't see it. We're usually sleeping. So this is definitely a, a story for a moonless night. All right, the last little bit at, this, at the end of this book is the part that I often enjoyed reading the best, the little peek into the world of the writer, the peek into the author um, 
you know, their comings and goings. So the little blurb at the end of the Tasha Tudor book says this, one of the world's foremost illustrators of children's books, Tasha Tudor has always had a special feeling for the world of folk and fairy tales. This has never been more apparent than it is in her bedtime book. The daughter of Rosamond Tudor, who was a portrait painter, and W. Starling Burgess, who designed yachts, Miss Tudor studied at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Though she was born in that city, she grew up on a farm in Connecticut, and she has never lost her enthusiasm for country life, especially for New England. She now lives in Vermont in a house built by her son, where she is surrounded by her corgis, her family, and friends. Okay, that was a good story hour that was really more than an hour that'll probably be turned into two episodes, maybe even three. But either way, I'm glad to have you all back in my lap for another lap. Chiholali. Okay, later, Gator. <laughs>